The Boston Book Festival believes in the power of words to stimulate, agitate, unite, delight, and inspire. In this session, Colin McCann discusses his art and his new collection of short fiction, 13 Ways of Looking, with Claire Massoud, author of The Woman Upstairs. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for coming. My name is Jennifer Inglis, and I am Chief of Public Services for the Boston Public Library. Thank you all for coming today to this fabulous keynote. We are pleased to be an executive sponsor with the Boston Book Festival and the newly created Boston Literary District. And I hope you've had a chance to come and visit the renovation at the Central Library. Stage one opened in February with innovative services for children and teens in the city. And we had a ton of programs today for the festival. The BPL is a sponsor of today's keynote event featuring National Book Award winner Colin McCann discussing his latest work, 13 Ways of Looking, with Claire Massoud, another best-selling award-winning author of literary fiction. We are rich today. The stories in 13 Ways of Looking are linked by acts of violence, from a child frustrated thrashing to a literal murderous punch but also by the complexity of storytelling and memory and of fictions within fictions. Ladies and gentlemen, our authors today. Thank you. Good afternoon and welcome. Uh, I am not going to list the countless accomplishments of my dear friend and until recently colleague at Hunter College in the MFA program, I mean, I left, he didn't, um, Colin McCann, but it, it is very, very wonderful to have him here today. I said this to him uh, before, before, before I was blinded by the light, um, I, I, I said this uh, so that he would know that I wasn't just saying this for the audience. Um, it, it rarely, happens that, uh, that you think a writer can't better him or herself. That, for starters, rarely happens. And then to find that he does with each work of fiction, with each work of art, surpass himself um, is even more rare. And it's, it's I, I, I feel as though, um, the introduction was testament to the power of Colum's fiction. And if you haven't yet had the privilege of reading 13 Ways of Looking, uh, it, 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 is, it is a book um, that is actually many books, several books, a number of books anyway. Uh, each story has the power of a book, uh, and, and it is a book that will stay with you uh, I, I'm into this idea that we have not just literally lived lives, but literarily lived lives that are as powerful to us as the experiences we have and uh, that we actually experience physically. And um, this is a book that, that reinforces that faith. So it's a great privilege to have Colm here, and I think he's going to read for us a little first. Thank so, you so welcome much. Welcome, Colm McCann. Go over here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for those two beautiful uh, uh, introductions. And what a place uh, to read. Uh, I feel very, very privileged. And I was, for the first time ever, I was at the, the Boston Public Library today. And uh, 
that was quite an experience. So, um, in fact, I landed in this town, uh, oh, thir almost 30 years ago uh, when I first came across. I ended up sleeping in the doorway of the purple shamrock bar. That's what it was like. <laughs> Lord above. I'm going to read to you from a, uh, from a story called Shukul, uh, and the first little section I'm going to read to you from sort of explains uh, where this word comes from. A novella had arrived from the publisher in Tel Aviv eight months before, a beautifully written story by an Arab Israeli from Nazareth, an important piece of work, she thought. She had begun immediately to translate it, the story of a middle-aged couple who had lost their two children. She had come upon the word shukhol. She cast around for a word to translate it, but there was no proper match. There were words, of course, for widow, widower, and orphan, but no noun, no adjective for a parent who had lost a child. None in Irish either. She looked in Russian, in French, in German, in other languages too, but could find analogues only in Sanskrit, Vilma, and in Arabic, Tachla, a mother. Mathchul, a father, still none in English. It had bothered her for days. She wanted to be true to the text, to identify the invisible, torn open, ripped apart, stolen. In the end, she had settled upon the formal word bereaved, not precise enough, she thought, no mystery in it, no music, hardly a proper translation at all, bereaved. And here is the start of the story. It was their first Christmas in Galway together, mother and son. The cottage was hidden alongside the Atlantic, blue-windowed, slate-roofed, tucked near a grove of sycamore trees. The branches were bent inland by the wind. White spindrift blew up from the sea, landing softly on the tall hedges in the back garden. During the day, Rebecca could hear the rhythmic approach and fall of the waves against the shore. At night, the sounds seemed to double. Even in the wet chill of the December evenings, she slept with her window opening, listening to the roll of the water sounding up from the low cliffs, rasping over the run of stone walls, sweeping toward the house where it seemed to pause, hover a moment, then break. On Christmas morning, she left his present by the fireplace, boxed and wrapped and tied with red ribbons. Thomas tore the package open and it fell in a bundle at his feet. He had no idea what it was at first. He held it by the legs, then the waist, turned it upside down, clutched it dark against his chest. She reached behind the tree and removed a second package, a neoprene hood, a neoprene boots and a hood. Thomas stripped his shoes and shirt. He was thin, strong, pale. When he pulled off his trousers, she glanced away. The wetsuit was liquid around him. She had bought it two sizes too big so he could grow into it. He spread his arms wide and whirled round the room. She hadn't seen him so happy in months. Rebecca gestured to him that they would go down to the water in just a few hours. Thirteen years old, and there was already a whole history written in him. She had adopted him from Vladivostok at the age of six. On her visit to the orphanage, she had seen him crouched beneath a swing set. His hair was blonde, his eyes a pellucid blue sores on his neck, long, thin scars on his lower back. He had been born deaf, but when she called out his name, he had turned quickly toward her a sign. She was sure of it. Shards of his story would always be a mystery to her. 
the early years, an ancestry she knew nothing about, a rumour that he'd been born near a rubbish dump, the possible inheritances, mercury, radiation sickness, beatings. She was aware of what she was getting herself into, but she'd been with Alan then. They'd stayed in a shabby hotel overlooking the Bay of Amour, days of bribe and panic. Anxious phone calls late in the night, long hours in the waiting room, a diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome gave them pause. Still, they left after six weeks, swinging Thomas between them. On the Aeroflot flight, the boy kept his head on her shoulder. At customs in Dublin, her fingers trembled over the paperwork. The stamp came down when Alan signed. She grabbed Thomas's hand and ran him, laughing through arrivals. It was her 41st birthday. The days were good then. A three-bedroom house and step aside, a series of counsellors, therapists, speech experts, and even her parents to help them out. Now, seven years on, she was divorced, living out west. Her parents were gone, and her task had doubled. Her savings were stretched. The bills slipped one after the other through the letterbox. There were rumours that the special school in Galway might close. Still, she wasn't given to bitterness or loud complaint. She made a living translating from Hebrew to English. Wedding vows, business contracts, cultural pamphlets. There was a literary novel or two from a left-wing publisher in Tel Aviv. The pay was derisory, but she liked stepping into that otherness. And the books were a stay against indifference. Forty-eight years old, and there was a beauty about her. An olive to her skin, a slow to her eyes, an aquiline sweep to her nose. Her hair was dark, her body thin and supple. In the small village, she fit in well, even if she stood at a sharp angle to the striking blondness of her son. She relished the gale-tucked, the shifting weather, the hard light, the wind off the Atlantic. Bundled up against the chill, they walked along the pier amongst the lobster pots and coiled ropes and disintegrating fishing boats. The rain slapped the windows of the shuttered shops. No tourists in winter. In the supermarket, the local women often watched them. More than once, Rebecca was asked if she was the band Kaurach, a phrase she liked, the help, the nanny, the midwife. There was a raw wedge of thrill in her love for him. The presence of the unknown, the journey out of childhood, the step into a future self. Some days Thomas took her hand, leaned on her shoulder as they drove through the village beyond the abandoned schoolhouse past the whitewashed bungalows toward home. She wanted to clasp herself over him, shroud him, absorb whatever came his way. Most of all, she wanted to discover what sort of man might emerge from underneath that very pale skin. He wore the wetsuit all Christmas morning. He lay on the floor, playing video games, his fingers fluid on the console. Over the rim of her reading glasses, she watched the grey stripe along the sleeve move. It was, she knew, a game she shouldn't allow. Tanks, ditches, killings, tracer bullets. But it was a small sacrifice for an hour of quiet. No rage this Christmas. No battles, no tears. At noon, she gestured for him to get ready. The light would fade early. She had two wetsuits of her own in the bedroom, but she left them hanging, pulled on running shoes, an anorak, a warm scarf. At the door, Thomas threw his duffel coat loose around the neoprene. Just a quick dip, she said to him in Irish. There was no way of knowing how much of any language Thomas could understand. His signing was rudimentary, but she could tell a thing or two from the carry of his body, the shape of his shoulders, the hold of his mouth. 
Mostly she divined from his eyes. He was handsome in a roguish way. The eyes themselves were narrow, yes, but agile. He had no other physical symptoms of fetal alcohol, no high brow, no thin lip, no flap, philtrum. They stepped out into a shaft of light so clear and bright it seemed made of bone. Just down by the low stone wall, a cloud curtained across and the light dropped grey again. A few stray raindrops stung their faces. And this was what she loved about the west of Ireland, the weather made from cinema. A squall could blow in at any time, and moments later the grey would be hunted open with blue. One of the walls, down by the bottom field, had been reinforced with metal pipes. I've got to tell you, this is a real wall. It's in Roundwood. Anybody who's been to Roundwood will, will hear this wall sometime. It was the worst sort of masonry against all local tradition, but the wind moved across the mouths of the hollow metal tubes and pierced the air with a series of accidental whistles. Thomas ran his hand over the pipes one by one, adjusting the song of the wall. She was sure his fingers could gain vibrations in the metal. Small moments like these, they crept up and sliced her open. Halfway toward the water, he broke into a Charlie Chaplin walk, twirling an imaginary stick as he bent forward into the gale, feet pointed sideways. He made a whooping sound as he topped a rise and caught sight of the sea. She called for him to wait. It was habit, even if his back was turned. He remained at the edge of the cliff, walking in place, almost a perfect imitation. Where had he seen Chaplin? Some video game, maybe? Some television show? There were times she thought that despite the doctors, he still might someday crack open the impossible longings that she held for him. At the precipice, above the granite sea stack, they paused. The waves hurried to shore, long scribbles of white. She tapped him on the small of his back where the wetsuit bunched. The neoprene hood framed his face. Stay where it's shallow now, promise me. She scooted behind him on her hunkers. The grass was cold to her fingertips. Her feet slid forward in the mud. The rocks were slick with seaweed. Thomas was already knee-deep in the cove. Don't go any further now, she called. Twice he looked as if he were about to round the edge of the dark rock into the deeper water, once when he saw a windsurfer, yet again when a kayak went swiftly by. She waved her arms. Just no more, love, okay? He returned to her, fanned the low water with his fingers, splashed it high, both arms in his chaplain motion. Stop it, please said Rebecca softly. You're soaking me. He splashed her again, turned away, dove under for ten seconds. Fourteen. Fifteen. Eighteen. Came up ten yards away, spluttering for air. Come on now, please, come in. Thomas swam towards the sea stack, the dark of his feet disappearing into the water. She watched the wetsuit ripple under the surface, a long, sleek shadow. A flock of seabirds serried over the low waves in a taunt. Her body stiffened. She edged forward again and waited. I have, she thought, made a terrible, terrible mistake. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. He left you hanging. He left you waiting for more. I feel if, you, if you're feeling a desperate urge to go procure the book just now, hold on, it'll be there. It'll still be there in a short while. Um, Calm, it's, it's interesting um, to me, although perhaps to nobody else, that um, although I have many dog-eared pages and so on, 
the, the place that I had put a little post-it note and I was going to ask you to read aloud was where you started. Wow, wow. Um, and I think uh, th there are lots of reasons uh, for that. So, so with with writing about the word shkol, um, and, and one of them one of them is that for you, for all of us is, uh, who write, but but we begin with the word, mm. and uh, and I wondered whether in fact this was the word that this piece began with, or where where this piece began, where it, whether it began somewhere else and then you found a word you hadn't known existed. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, when, I, when I was doing my tour for Transatlantic, um, I, I, I would bring my um, copy around and um, I asked people at the at reading if um, they knew of a, a word in any language uh, that would, um, you know, for a parent who had lost, lost a child. And then people came up and scribbled on, on, on my book and I carried this with me for a long, long time. I don't know where um, it came from, but the desire was to write about uh, a word. And then also the, the desire then was to go home, uh, go back to Ireland in a way, uh, and to negotiate this, um, this space um, and to figure out uh, what it was. And so it seemed natural, if I was going to use a Hebrew word, that I could talk a little bit about the, um, uh, the Irish-Jewish um, community. Uh, and also with the, with, with the knowledge that the, the greatest character in, in, um, in 20th century uh, literature, if not all literature, is uh, an Irish-Hungarian Jew, uh, Leopold Bloom. Who, whose, cousin, whose cousin is in the first part of this book. Whose cousin really is in the first part of, part of the book, yeah. yeah. Um, but I wanted to explore that, 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 that territory. And, um, and who knows where the story comes from? James was talking earlier about mystery. and, and um, you know, mystery joins these things together. As a fiction writer, like I, I'm not entirely conscious of where uh, where it came comes from, but I knew that, that I wanted to explore that 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 one particular word. But but it's interesting because in the in the um, so there's that the word that word that emotional experience that dreadful experience. But you have a you have the two characters of whom the main characters in the story of whom we hear is one is the mother Rebecca, who is a who is a translator from Hebrew to English, right. but who also speaks to her son, who cannot hear her right. um, in in Irish yeah. as well, and then also speaks Russian. Yes. So because she has some Russian poetry and yeah. um, and he meanwhile is without language right sort of standing outside language and and i wondered how how um how in the in, as you worked on this story what what the the relation of of being inside or between or outside language because it, it, it it's amazing how powerful it is that he can't speak right and, and, and again, that sort of stuff, um, I mean, I wish I was clever enough to have realized that as I was writing it. Uh, <laughs> and then it might have been better, but, but often, it, you know, it's when readers come along or people uh, come along and, and show you uh, the architecture of what, you, what you've done, uh, that you begin to realize, oh yeah, maybe that's true. So I become like a magpie. And next time I talk about <laughs> it, I'm gonna say, I say, oh yeah, I was very conscious about like how we was outside language. And, uh, <laughs> But it's not, you know, um, not not always entirely true. I think one th the one thing for me is that I love to to leave it open. I feel that that that, that rather than 
uh, knowing what, I don't want to be too pretentious, but I, I think uh, there's a Dostoevsky quote that I like, that to be too acutely conscious is to be diseased. Um, so that if you know exactly what it is that you want to do, you bring a sort of sickness to, to, to your work, or uh, maybe sickness is not the best word, maybe stiffness to the work. Um, and I think one of the great privileges of literature is allowing the reader to come out of it so that she uh, or he, um, generally it's she these days, right? It's like, um, but um, uh, creates their own text yes. out of it um, at, at the end. And then they come back and, and then interpret it for me. Well, there's that lovely, uh, I think in one of the introductions to his books of lectures, Nabokov wrote about the reader and the writer climbing the mountain right. from opposite sides. And, that, um, and I think it, it was a sort of notion that came up in, in earlier in James James's discussion with a question from Bart about the reader brings experiences and and writes right. their in in that sense writes his or her own text each time each right. time right. yeah yeah it's um hmm yeah the imagination I'm I I, I it's an interesting the ineffable right. so so let's step back and uh, there are so many. So many things, so many things, can we stay all night? Um, but let's step back, just, just the imagination that puts these pieces together. It's mm. true, They're, they, they share violence. Mm. Um, was that a, 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 a starting point? Uh, or was it something that, that emerged of its own accord as you were writing? Um, you told me a little story about about the shaping of this book before we came in, right. um, that maybe it was initially going to be a bit different. Yeah. Um, well, initially it was going to be 13 stories. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't really uh, like them. I was just, you know, it, I, I was shoehorning these stories in together. And then uh, a little bit of the elephant that, 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 that's in the room in relation to this text, or so, sort of out of the room, in, in, is that I was three quarters of the way through a novella about a man who sort of seemingly gets randomly punched in the chest on, on a street. Uh, I was trying to finish it, um, and um, I got uh, assaulted, and um, anybody who's interested, can, I have a witness impact statement uh, on, uh, on the web, but I had my and voice taken away from me. The, I, I just say, if you need to find it, it in the back of the book, in the author's right. note, it tells you where to find it. Uh, and I was, um, I was completely, I was silenced, or, and I, I wasn't literally paralyzed. I mean, I had some, some pretty severe injuries. I was in a, out of hospital for a couple of months for different things. Um, but I, I stopped writing for months, and, and it got dark. It got really bad. Um, and uh, the only way that I was able to sort of climb out of it was to actually write this, um, this victim impact statement. So this thing sort of released me. Um, and then I began to look at these particular four stories. And, and each of these four stories were sort of um, had this moment of, um, of, of, of violence and, and, and people trying to come to terms with the violence. And so that's why I chopped them down from 13 stories to, uh, to, to one novella and three stories. And then I realized it's one novella and three stories is 13 ways. It's like, <laughs> well, but there are also, um, there are also 13, in, in the title piece, there are 13 
chapters, are there not? There are 13. Yes. Actually, in every single story, there are 13 sections. Sections. Yeah. Oh, I didn't count that part. Yeah, but, um, so, so, so leaving it to chance, but not that much, right? right? Yes, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so um, do you, do you want to, when you say it, it took your voice away, mm. um, in, I mean, I'm sure in, 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 for a short time, it literally did. Right. But, but, but are you, and don't, I don't want you to talk about stuff you don't, but right. are you, do you feel able to talk about what that experience was and, and why you think it, it yeah. had that effect? I'm able to talk about it now. Yeah. I've reclaimed my territory. In fact, in a certain way, I feel that I was allowed to punch back with that, 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 that victim impact statement. And, and, and I think it's incredibly important. I had a, a hard time. It's like, okay, do I talk about this or do I not? Do I leave it? And, and it was a matter of public record. Anybody could have gone in and found the statement. But do I bring attention to it now? And then I got literally hundreds of emails and dozens of, of, of letters from people all around the world who had been uh, subjected to violence uh, and saying, thank you for standing up. Because what happened was there was a woman being beaten in the street. And I, I, I sort of got Haven, involved in New, New Haven, Connecticut. And, and um, it was afterwards, after I'd resolved the situation verbally, that the, the man came along and assaulted me from, uh, hit me from behind um, and sort of took me out. I woke up two hours later going into an MRI machine. Um, but then these women in particular said, you know, like, like uh, we have to stand up. We have to have the ability to, to tell our story. And this is where sort of reality, uh, it was influence, influencing fiction. And then the fiction was or the fiction was influenced by reality and then, and then vice versa. So these four pieces were heavily influenced in the editing process by what had happened to me. Um, and so they're about trying to achieve, um, like one of the stories is about trying to achieve uh, forgiveness or acceptance, but um, I say in my victim impact statement about the guy. This is treaty? Treaty, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, I said, I forgive him, but I do not excuse him. And this is very important to me. Like I wanted in a certain way for it to tar him, for him not to get away with this. But I didn't also want him to go to prison. So that, uh, and, and that was part of the statement then too. Um, so I had to juggle all these things. Uh, and, and yet the fiction gave, gave me a great release. I, I mean, I don't really write all that much about uh, my uh, immediate life. I mean, I used to joke with Frank McCourt that, that um, I was really uh, annoyed with him because he got all the misery in Ireland. You know, <laughs> and like, like left nothing for the rest of us. <laughs> like, and I had that, like, uh, I, I had a fairly uh, safe middle class upbringing. My father was a, a, a journalist. Another thing about this collection, too, is my father died just as I was finishing it, and he got, he got a chance to, 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 to read it. So there's all this sadness and, and, and tension that, 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 that's in there, and yet I hope there's also some fun and, 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 uh, you know, and a little bit of a, a release. For me, being able to talk about this now in front of like a crowd like this, I can firmly say that I, that I have my territory back. Um, I wish everybody could say that. I don't think it is that way. I think we have to learn to listen uh, a whole lot uh, more to people, um, and, and, and people have to be allowed to tell their story somehow, and we have to allow ourselves to listen to it, um, and, uh, particularly in those small little anonymous corners where people are getting beaten over and over again. Well, um 
do you do you want to talk about narrative four? Yeah, because yeah. that that's what narrative four is about. Narrative four is a is a um, an organisation um, brought together a, a series of writers and activists and teachers. Uh, in fact, um, you know, I was thinking this morning. Um, I was getting on a plane because I was come, I came from Washington D.C. and they were saying that military personnel should should you know can get onto the plane if you're you know and and i have nothing there's nothing wrong with that i think that's fine that's great wonderful very happy with that and don't have any objection but i'm looking forward to the day when they say the teachers any of the teachers out there with the card <laughs> come on and get on the plane first i mean seriously uh, but so with narrative four we have these authors and then we have teachers in the background and then we have students and 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 the essence of the organization is that you tell my story i tell yours I step into your shoes, you step into mine. So, I, hi, my name is Claire. When I was 12 years old, such and such happened to me. Hi, my name is Colin. Uh, and uh, we have kids from Northern Ireland, from Rwanda, from Newtown, Connecticut. Hopefully we'll be, we'll be in Boston soon, south side of Chicago. Well, they all come together and it's about that process of, so your story is valuable, your life is valuable to me, uh, and my life is made valuable by you telling it back to me. Um, and um, so, and I believe that's how literature works too. We talk about radical empathy. So there, there are two things that come up there that I that that I want, but we can't talk about them both at once. So, but I'll throw them out there. And and one is because it seems actually not in a, a at all a, a self-conscious way, but just a very present way. Um, this idea of a sort of almost, I guess. The, the category globalization, the the, num, the the ways in which the characters in your pieces here, like the young people you're describing, uh, who are in uh, are part of narrative four, um, ha come from all over and from so many mm. different backgrounds. And and I have it perhaps um, in my mind anyway. I I was I've just been reading Edna O'Brien. You know, has a, yeah. uh, this new book, the Little Red Chairs, the Red Chairs, yeah. which um, in which almost like a chorus, uh, characters come forward and tell their characters from, from traumatic uh, places of suffering with, mm. with extraordinary stories come forward and tell their stories. Mm. And um, so, so, so the ways in which um, the, the storytelling is, is, is necessary, but also I want to ask you, about how how as a as writers and as readers we can make sense, you know when 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 you when when you wrote when Sherwood Anderson you know wrote Winesburg Ohio right. that was already a lot of stories you know and that was a tiny town and now we have the whole world as it were before us and how do we make make sense of that and the other question that comes up um, is something that we were uh, just beginning to touch on before before we joined you guys which is this question of fiction right. um, and and it's important in a, it seems as though with narrative four it's important for people to be telling autobiographical stories rather than invented stories right. and so what what the place what the relation is of those for right. you so, uh, yeah, with, with, with Narrative 4, you tell a story from your life. Well, I say to the kids, because uh, it's hard, I want you to tell an important story. And they're like, oh, what's an important story? I said, well, think about it this way. If you told a story and you put it in the ground and an archaeologist came along 100 years from now and dug up that story, he would understand exactly who you are. 
and kids get that and then they tell each other um, uh, these stories and then we find that they go back into their communities and get involved in, in all sorts of other other things like uh, you know narrative for gun control narrative for the environment and so on so that's that, that's important in that sense and and we don't want them to make up stories and uh, and and I haven't really examined that um, except uh, you know, maybe one day we'll have a, a, a narrative for where they, they will be making up stories. But I think this word fiction is very, very interesting to me. Um, I don't know if it, ex if it exists, certainly in, in, in opposition to non-fiction. I, I think as Clifford Gertz said, the, the real is imagined and the imagined is real. Uh, it's interesting, you know, the real being imagined is, is, is um, is very easy to understand because all you have to do is watch Fox 5 News uh, <laughs> and the real is absolutely imagined, right? But the imagined then being real is, is, is different territory. Like, so, so, so these stories that we create, are they real? Uh, um, James was talking about, uh, about life and lifeness, which was a wonderful talk, and I was reminded of Joyce saying that the function of literature is to recreate life out of life. Um, and I, and, and I, I believe that these characters that you create, uh, that Michael and Dace creates, that uh, you know, all of these writers at this festival here create, they're actually living, breathing things. By virtue of the fact that they have been imagined, they have so, somehow then become real. And well, there's a tension then between fiction and non-fiction. And we, sh I mean, we share them. You know, if, if I say to you Raskolnikov, right. we can have a conversation about somebody we both know who never actually existed but who right. does exist and there was a when I was a, years ago when I was teaching undergraduates and I was having them read the lady with the little dog and I said okay let's start with the beginning is Chekhov does anybody know anything about Chekhov's silence is he alive or dead mm. silence and when I, I, I when I um, came home and told that story James said well maybe they understood you to mean it in a different way uh, that's <laughs> so, nice. yes he's profoundly alive but it's true fiction you right. know fiction makes things alive yeah well the way I put it is, okay, uh, I only got to meet my granddad one time. It was on the Pimlico Road in London. He was, he, basically, he was a drunk uh, in London. I was growing up in Dublin. My father took me across to, to uh, watch a football match, uh, and uh, I went to the nursing home, and he was there. And I went up on the bed, and, and he told me all these great stories. However, uh, so I met him one time, and he told me a little bit about my great-grandfather. Now, my great-grandfather was would have been the exact same age as Leopold Bloom on June 16, 1904. Hmm. My, fa my, my grandfather was about eight years old at that particular time. I only got to meet him once, as I said, my grandfather never. My great-grandfather is more real to me hmm. because I'm able to read Ulysses. So that blood that's thumping in me, that's very real. That blood that's in me is very, very real. It's informed by the fiction Yes. that was created by, 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 by Joyce. That to me is the absolute beauty um, of, of literature uh, and stories and storytelling because it just makes the world bigger and wider and braver but at the same time it focuses in on the local and that local becomes the universal. Um, but so how does it have a place? Say, say um, I know exactly what you mean, and I feel it especially, you know, as 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 we reach a time in life where, where we lose our parents, right. um, and and in some way the way we can save some of them or, or or retrieve something or share something with our kids, 
um, is by telling the stories. Exactly. But but that works both for the nonfiction side, right. um, and for for you and I who happen to write fiction, it works for the fiction side. But 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 how 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 is the fiction? I guess I'm, I'm, you know, it's, I, we keep referring to James, what James right. was saying earlier, but, but, but the question of sort of tr truthfulness in fiction, right. um, of saying something, and, and I think it's really important um, because I, I feel as though one of the things that you and I, I think, would sort of, various cliches come to mind, go to the mat for, is that a wrestling expression? What right, is that? Sure. Anyway, but that we would really um, defend to the hilt is, is this idea of truthfulness in fiction, that something right. can be uh, humanly true, that it can uh, reflect or illuminate our lives. And I'm not sure that young, young readers feel that now in the same, or feel that urgency in the same way now. Mm. I don't know if what yours means, but I but I feel as though one of the questions I have about I, I mean I you know I love that you know fantasy is is such a big part of of you, the, this freedom of the imagination, but I feel as though there's there's sometimes a question of what's at stake, right. and I don't know if that's something that um, I don't know if that's a question. I feel like now I'm like the the people you know who say I have a question and then talk yeah. for ten minutes and have no question, but but. <laughs> But 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 I guess I guess what I would ask is if some if, if you were called upon to, to say give a defense of fiction, hmm. what would it be? Uh, I would first of all I collapse this the, the, this fiction and nonfiction into the one word story and storytelling um, and just allow it to exist um, in 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 that way. But my defense of, uh, of fiction is that it is possibly uh, more truthful uh, than uh, than than uh, uh, nonfiction as we traditionally see it because of that idea of consciousness that we were talking about earlier. When you're so aware with nonfiction of what you want to do, uh, whereas with fiction, if you embrace mystery, um, there's something deeper that, that, that's going on there. I tell uh, my students at Hunter College um, that you know, the, 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 the best writing advice is you should write what you know, right? Everyone says that, and they're absolutely right. But I also think it's a ridiculous thing to say. Uh, <laughs> Because really what you should do is write towards what you want to know or even write what you don't know. And in the process of writing what you don't know, you will realize things that you knew but weren't entirely aware of. And that to me is part of the beauty um, of, of, of stretching. And, and in the end, we can only ever write what we know. It's, a, it, it, it's philosophically impossible to write what you don't know. Uh, but in making that leap outwards, you come back and, and, and so, um, for example, if there's a mother character in the fiction, I make her so far removed from, 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 from your own mother uh, that you will, find, you will find elements of your true mother in there too, yeah. and it'll be an expansive sort of character. Um, and I would go to the mat for fiction, um, just in the same way that I would go to the mat for like somebody shouldn't be beating their, 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 their wife on the street. Right. Like these are, Element, there are certain elemental human things that have to occur, and stories uh, are, I would say, after food, and after roof, and after companionship, stories are, are, are one of the most important things that we have. And, and um, you know, we've been talking all afternoon. I think death can take away 
whole lot of things, but it cannot take away our stories. Yeah. You know, that's important. Right. It's very true. It's very true. Yeah. So now I'm gonna now I'm gonna call you back on that globalization piece right. and and how I mean you are a citizen of of both Ireland and the United States I believe is yeah. that right? Can I tell you a really cool story about citizen? Yeah. Okay, so uh, you know John Berger? Not personally, but yeah. But I, I mean John Berger is probably one of the greatest writers and a, a huge hero of mine. Um, so uh, I got to got to know him and I was um, in Paris with him and we were both a little bit overserved. <laughs> Everyone in Boston who's of Irish heritage knows that term. Um, and um, so I was saying to him, John, where are you from? You know, like, or, John, where are you from? <laughs> and he says, he looks at me, well, I'm from London. You know, like, I said, oh, I know you're from London. Like, I said, but where are you from, from? <laughs> and he says to me, he says, I am a citizen, and then he waited a long time, he says, no, 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 I am a patriot of elsewhere. <laughs> That's lovely. And I thought that is absolutely magnificent. It's absolutely magnificent. And it fits in with this whole idea of, uh, of, of globalization. You know, if you can become a, a patriot of elsewhere, then you also become a, a person who is sort of uh, exploring what it means to be other. Not only are you in a different, going to a different place, but you're also exploring what it means to, 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 to be other. And I think one of the great things that's happening in literature nowadays is that you have these people who are, who are moving very free, like, freely with great agility from one place to the next. And um, that, that, that makes me excited for uh, the, the work that's going on. And do you think, because I feel sort of you know, part, part of what's great about um, people moving and, uh, I mean, and different stories being told and different voices being heard, um, part of it is that people who's, who, who've never heard a story from someone like them are hearing, you know, are, the, are hearing those stories. Right. But of course, the, the, the thing that we don't want to have happen is that only, you only listen to the stories of the people who seem familiar. That's right. Right. And, 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 so part of the part of being a patriot of elsewhere is is in a funny way like your narrative for gesture, which is a constant, right. co if you will, empathetic or compassionate. It's not even compassionate, empathetic endeavor right. of of entering somebody else's right. skin. Yeah, and I I think this is really important because you can keep these things too local. Um, you know, part of what the narrative four model is about is not direct conflict resolution. So if we go into Belfast, not necessarily going to have kids from uh, East Belfast telling the stories of kids from, from West Belfast. I'd much rather have a kid from East Belfast uh, swap stories or exchange stories with a kid from the south side of Chicago and a kid from West Belfast exchange stories with a kid from Rwanda. And then they go back in. After they've done that, then they go back in and recognize that they, they, they can uh, understand one another. So by going out, you actually uh, enable yourself to come, come back, back in, in a more powerful, more profound way. Um, and it also happens to be a lot of fun to get people together. So you get like a, a young Muslim girl standing up and saying, you know, 
hi, my, she, let's say she comes from, from, from Pakistan, and then she stands up and says, hi, my name is Sandra, you know, and, and uh, then she tells a story about being a suburban girl in Connecticut or something like that. <laughs> Just, it's really kind of fantastic. It's a form of acting as well. Cool. I think that it's, I think I'm, I'm hogging you, and I think it's time, um, there's some, some, there's a mic here, so if anyone has a question, this is the time when you may come and ask Colin your question. Don't be shy. We're blinded by the light. We cannot see We are see blinded you. by the light. Yeah, we're blinded by the light. And we got these great water bottles. It looked like flasks of vodka <laughs> and gin, you know, but it's actually water. What the heck Hello. is it like to write a two-page sentence? Hmm. <laughs> what is it like to, to, to write a two-page sentence? It's, it's, it's like pissing your editor off, uh, like royally. Um, actually, I, uh, there, I have one book called Dancer, which is a, like a 40-page sentence, um, which is, uh, I basically, what, what I was trying to do in that book was to, um, to, uh, to stimulate or, or um, simulate a, uh, a cocaine high. Uh, and uh, so this character, Victor goes through uh, New York for, 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 I think it's about 40 pages anyway. Um, I think it's like music, I suppose, isn't it, right? Um, one, as a writer, one wants to write music. So if you can imagine like Van Morrison, you want to be like Van Morrison, you know, <laughs> and hold a note for a long, long time, or do, write Madame George or something like that. And, and so sometimes you write short sentences, and then you, and then, and then you release yourself with a, with, with a long sentence. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, you came to Connecticut College about this time last year, actually, to teach my creative writing class. And <laughs> hi. 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 Um, you talked about finding things in the universal and the local at the right time, and I feel like literature can be one of those things that you do find at the right time. So is there a book in your life that you found at the exact right moment, and why? Is there a book in my life that I found at the exact right moment, and why? Um, you know, when I was traveling um, across the United States, I went on a bicycle and started actually here, and, and started in Hyannis, um, in fact, and went all the way, did 12,000 miles over the course of the next year and a half. I got different books along the way. Um, but one of them was um, a little book called FUP uh, by, the by an author by the name of Jim Dodge. Bizarre little book, a fable about a duck. And obviously the FUP duck is, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's, doing, it's do, doing certain anagrammatical things. Um, and uh, that was a wonderful little book that, that sort of uh, opened me to, to, to possibility. At the same time, I was reading Kerouac, Ginsburg, Burroughs, Ferlinghetti. Uh, I was sort of dining out on, on, on all of those guys. But I mean, um, there's so many books that I, that, 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 that um, you know, I, I hesitate to say uh, which, which one might be the most important. Um, early on, uh, I think, People like uh, Dylan, it was poets for me, Dylan Thomas, Jared Manley Hopkins, around about the age of 10, 11, 12, when, when I started hearing that sort of stuff, that, that was enormously important for me. But if I had to have one book with me, uh, and I'd love to know what book you, you, you'd choose to, I would take uh, Ulysses with me uh, to a desert island, just because I think it is a compendium of human experience. 
and you could read it over and over and over again. And also have a little bit of fun with Molly at the end of it all. <laughs> What's yours? What's mine? Oh, well, I don't know. I, I mean, as you're saying, I don't, I don't know. I, I absolutely see Ulysses. I'm, I'm, I, might, I'm, I might have, then I think, oh, that's so poncy. But I might have Proust. I might, yeah. yeah. Right. I might. Cool. I love the sentences. Yeah. You know, I do. I got to tell you a funny story. A friend of mine um, passed away um, two years ago. His name is Brendan Burke. He's a photographer. And I'd been at him to read Ulysses over and over and over again. And um, he died very young uh, at the age of 50. But two weeks before he died, his partner told me that he bought Ulysses. Now, I think he bought it because it had gone out of copyright and he got a cheap version in the Dublin bookshops. <laughs> uh, no, he was, he was a very generous man. Anyway, um, I'm there in Fairview in the city centre of Dublin and, and, and have a chance to be with Brendan, he's in a, a wicker coffin, it was open coffin as many Irish people do. And um, I had an hour before anybody else came in and Liz, his partner, had put Ulysses on his chest so he could take it with him. And so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I'm just gonna read some to him. So I, I, read, all, I read all the dirtiest parts I could find. <laughs> Put a smile on his face before he, before he took To take he with took him off. to the afterlife. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. great. Hi there. Um, Hi. So many of your uh, novels and collections begin with either a river or a waterway. Mm. And I wanted to know if this was connected to another theme throughout your collections of memory and the way that the past emerges and re-emerges. Well, see, now I'm going to, um, I'm going to steal that one. <laughs> yeah, so one of the it's things I've been thinking about all my life is how these rivers come in <laughs> and how it's connected to, 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 to memory and so on. Um, wasn't it uh, Joyce has said, uh, I love all things that flow? Um, and of course, you know, he's completely haunted, but if you read Finnegan's Wake and, and, and all that whole section with rivers, I think we're all, um, you know, gathered together by rivers. If you think of like, um, you know, the United States without the whole, the Mississippi flowing down to New Orleans and all these metaphors that, that, that work with, uh, with, with water, um, that sort of whole life-sustaining thing. I think it's unavoidable. Um, certainly it's not conscious, but my first book was called Fishing the Slow Black River. Um, and that's S-L-O-E, um, and that came from um, an old Irish phrase, which means um, my heart is as dark as a slowberry. And, and I thought, oh, and then the, if, if you have a slow black river, what is that? Well, that's the river Lethe. Uh, and that is then about death. It is about memory. It is about, about imagination. Uh, so. Yeah, so from here on in, I'll be quoting you uh, and saying, <laughs> and pre pretending I was, I, I was smart enough to know that sort of thing. I'm not, thank you. You have to come to Boston to get the smart questions. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. So when you started writing the novella, um, what was your inspiration for the novel? Like when you thought about it, like your image and- For the novella here? Yes, for your novella here. And, my theory is, is that novellas, like their structure, their, their chapter structure is very prevalent because of the work is so short. Right. And also repetition also leaves like this lasting image. Well, I think um, like stories find their own length, right? They will find their own. If you're true to them, they will find their own necessary length. Um, I see short stories as imploding universes. They're almost perfectly 
you know, like white stars. And I see novels like red stars. They're like shooting off in several different directions and um, they're exploding. And you can make mistakes with, 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 with novels and you can't really make mistakes uh, as available with, with, with short stories. And novella sort of obviously lies in between. Um, the reason this became a novella was because I originally was going to try it as a novel and it began to bore me. Honestly, I was doing it from 13 different perspectives. The housekeeper, the, and I tried to write a cop. And honestly, I wrote the world's worst, most cliched cop. And I have great respect for people like Richard Price now, who can, who can pull a cop and, and make them entirely, entirely real. Um, so I was writing away on this thing, and I knew it was going to be 13 sections, 13 different voices. I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> you know? uh, it was just, and, and, and so, but I liked the voice of Mendelssohn, and, and, and I didn't want to lose him. So I sort of stuck with, with, with him. So it just sort of naturally fell down to, to, to novella length. And it would have been disingenuous to make it into, into a novel. Though my British publishers wanted to, me to, to like, take out the stories and publish only as the novella novel. as a short novel, because they could make, sell more copies that way. But it just didn't, it didn't feel like the right thing to do. It, didn't, it felt I was cheating some, somehow. And these four stories in particular relate to the, um, the earlier incident that we talked about in New Haven. So I felt that these things were gathered together. And, um, but no other reason than it just felt right to be that length. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to tell, me, uh, to tell you how compassionate Let the Great World Spin was. And the Thank characters you. are indelibly fixed in my memory. And apropos of what you just said, uh, I know a lot of the characters died, but are there any characters that are still rumbling around in your mind, like the priest, the priest's brother, the adopted children? Because I, I think about them so much and wonder how they're navigating wherever. Yeah, thank you. This is an interesting thing. Do your, do your characters, do you, do, are they gone or are they, or, or, or they, they, they hanging around for, for, for you years, years later? I feel like I... I, I've liberated them to the world, actually. Right. Do yours live with you? Yeah, they don't really live. I don't ever want to revisit them, but if, if, I, if I go to... So, so one of the characters in Let the Great World Spin um, is uh, a 38-year-old African-American hooker, Tilly. She lives in the South Bronx, uh, and she dies in, 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 in the novel. Um, but I, when I go to the South Bronx, I somehow feel that I can turn the corner and she somehow she will be there. Um, now, that's sort of weird, and, and, um, but I don't want to revisit her again. But I think I could, if I was forced and put into a room, uh, I, could, I could capture her voice again. So that in a certain way, this goes really to the heart of what we were talking about earlier, is that this person is now a living, breathing, um, a living, breathing thing. Um, and uh, then the other part of the, the, the answer to this question is that sometimes you get um, a film version of, of things. I'm sort of working on a film version of Let the Great World Spin, but um, th then you have to take your characters and, and you have to change them. Uh, and uh, you take a novel and you ho almost hold it in the air and let it smash to the ground and you look at what are the biggest pieces. And then um, it, you know they, they they become something something different for you, um, and will eventually be embodied in people, which changes. I mean, which will change them. Change the way we look at them, and 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 and, and all sorts of things. So, um, you know, uh, I 
I like the idea that these characters are there and, and, and they're living. So when I read, for, for instance, Peter Carey's work, or when I read your work, or Michael Ondaatje's work, or Edna O'Brien, those people then are alive for me. And the world has just gotten bigger. Yes. And, um, you know, and there's seven billion stories out there, but then there's many, several billion other stories to tell yes. at the same time too. Yes. That seems calm, like a wonderful place, I think, to stop. Colin McCann, thank you so Very much for being thank with you. us. Thank you. This podcast was produced by The Drum, a literary magazine for your ears.